Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. Well, not develop it, access it. They already have it. See, this is the thing. I call it the masterpiece. We have a masterpiece. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to access it and let it come through you. It's an inside job. So it's not something to be acquired. It's something to be discovered. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, director of Novus Global Sport, Dan Laffler, and I get to talk with none other than one of the top mental performance coaches in the world, George Munford. Here's a quote from one of George's clients. He's helped me understand the art of mindfulness. To be neither distracted nor focused, rigid or flexible, passive or aggressive, I learned to just be. Now, what makes that quote unique is that it was spoken by one of the greatest athletes in professional basketball, Kobe Bryant. George worked with Kobe at the Lakers, as well as with Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls. Phil Jackson wrote the foreword to George's book, The Mindful Athlete, available wherever books are sold. In this episode, we talk about the connections between addiction recovery and mindfulness, what is mindfulness and what are the benefits, as well as practical tips that the best use to perform at higher levels. Enjoy the show. George, so good to have you on the show. Thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Exciting to be here. And we've got uh, Dan Laflar on the call as well. Dan, hello. Hey, everybody. Hello. And uh, George, so we're just going to dive in. And, and it was really a blast doing research on you, listening to all the podcasts and the videos you have. And there's so much content out there online that I recommend people check out. And of course, Dan and I both read your book, and we really have gotten a lot of value from, from that. And that came out, I believe, in 2018. And so you can check that out wherever books are sold. My first question for you, while I was listening to your interviews and everything, there are little isms that would pop up that made me curious... And I think it, it tells a little bit about your story. So in one interview, you said, I'm, well, I'm just happy to be here to share my experience, strength, and hope. And I was like, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? And I was like, oh, because I, I spent some time in recovery 12-step rooms uh, yes. years ago. And I know that I think that that's a part of your story as well. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and how that has led to your coaching journey. Yes. So yes, experience, strength, and hope. I've been... I started going to 12-step recovery groups, I guess, on April Fool's Day, 1984. <laughs> Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yeah. buddy of mine came by and, he, and I hadn't seen him in a while and he was clean and sober. Mm. And he invited me. He caught me at a good time because I was sick and suffering for sure. Mm. And he invited me to an AA meeting. And I, and I went with him to the AA meeting. But before that, I looked at him and said, wait a minute, he's like me. You know, he's clean. So mm -hmm. that's, there's some hope for me. So that mm -hmm. was like, he was like one of those uh, signs or guardian angel that came by. And so I got into recovery and, and it took me another three months before I was able to go into a detox and then, then uh, come out. So the recovery, that's how I got my life back Yeah, through that. So being in 12-step recovery, and I was in different venues of that, uh, AA, NA, Al-Anon, ACOA, all sorts of, and mm -hmm. you name it, they have 12-step uh, recovery groups for it. But it's traditionally, or it's the, the essence of it is, how do you communicate or share with each other in a way where you get the most bang out of the buck? So mm -hmm. those guidelines of sharing your experience, your strength, and your hope makes it more, it, it, so it prevents it from being a uh, drunkalog or just focusing on what's wrong. 
Mm, but yeah. to talk about your story in a way where people can relate to it, identify with how you felt. And even though it may not be the same, but the, but the issue of suffering and how to not suffer or, or being controlled to, to getting control and how you did it. Yeah. Well, I remember my early days in recovery, all my early shares were about other people and their problems and the <laughs> things they were doing that I didn't like. And then I think I felt like the next level was me complaining about myself. And the, the third level was like me just being with myself and yes. just saying what is honest. And I found yes. a lot of healing in that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's where that came from. Yeah. And well, and I love that about you. And I love that about the authenticity about your journey. When you had that experience, where were you in your career? Was this, is this before things popped? Is it while things were popping? Yes. So I was an athlete and I would have been a walk-on at UMass Amherst. And at the time I was roomed with, with uh, Julius Irving, Dr. J. <laughs> and so the, the, we were a year apart. So the way it works is back in those days in the stone ages, <laughs> you had to play JV and varsity. To play varsity, you had to be a sophomore. So as a freshman, you played uh, junior varsity. And so he, he was a year ahead of me. So that would have been my intention was to make the team and for us to be able to play together because we used to we used to bondstorm. I guess I'll use that term. We used to play, you know, we used to go to different places and play. Uh, Jay and, and several of us would go, you know, and we go and we go to play other people. Obviously, we wanted to play together at UMass, but I got injured and and that ended my career, but I got addicted to pain meds. Hmm. And then the pain meds became, you know, alcohol and drugs, but I was functional, mm -hmm. continued to work. And so I got into recovery. And then once I got out of recovery, I recognized that I had chronic pain. Hmm. And so I got, at that time I was in an HMO, which was very unique back in 19, you know, I was in an HMO since 1975. But anyway, I was able to get help going to detox and then come out. And then I got into this, it was cutting edge mind body medicine. And, hmm. you know, and the doctor uh, running the program was Dr. Joan Borisenko. And at that time, there were only three psychoneuroimmunologists in the world. And she was one of them. And so she taught me about uh, this idea of taking responsibility for myself, but also the mind-body connection and about learning about myself and becoming more self-reliant and lifestyle change and learning about how to relate to my pain in a way where I didn't have to use so much medication because I couldn't because I was addicted to, to medicine, medicine. So that's how I got into it. And then once I got into it, it, it took me from from surviving to thriving. And hmm. then I decided to, to do more of that because at that time I was a financial analyst working in corporation. So I did that <laughs> for about 16 years. And then, at, and then I transitioned out, went back to graduate school and then the rest is history. You know, you mentioned learning from the, the best and the brightest. Any kind of interview with you that I found, you'll bounce back and forth between Sigmund Freud, Joseph Campbell, Viktor Frankl, and we're going to ask you some questions about s some of those insights that resonate. Yeah. Uh, you, you're not you 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 play to win. Like you've got the intellectual breadth. Uh, <laughs> you, you're not just pulling the pop culture stuff. Like you know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. That that is that is. That is correct. One of the things that, and this is the thing about knowing thyself, knowing yourself. And when I got clean and I started 
tuning or turning inward and thinking about how I felt about things, I had this need to be intellectually stimulated hmm. when I got clean. Even before I got clean, I was I was dabbling w- with it. But when I got clean, I just went all in. So I'll be coming up on 38 years of sobriety in July. Wow. And I've averaged over a book a week during that time. And I huh. and I neuroscience, uh, quantum physics, it doesn't matter if, if I'm interested in it or if it's something that one book tells me to check out this stuff, I, I go to it. So, so I'm, uh, yeah. So I just like to, I just like to understand how I work. And that was the thing that got me into this stuff is I was very fascinated with how I was able to get clean when there's so many other people not able to, to do that as yeah. well as stop trying to understand people and myself more. So I got into it. So yeah, I just, yeah, I just, I just dabble and I, I know a lot. Sometimes I have to laugh at myself. I forget. I probably forgot more than most people ever learn. <laughs> I bet that's true. Well, it's not only the education, but the long game. And Yes. And the interaction and the curiosity, being on a, a journey yeah. of discovery. And speaking of know thyself, was that Aristotle who said that? But it's also one of the chapters of your book. Yes. I, I believe it was, I think it was Socrates. Socrates. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, so yeah, so I um, and then what happened to me? Where, where this is where Dan and I uh, we shared about this before. Mm-hmm. So I was in recovery for a couple of years, and then I went back to graduate school. And what opened the door for my my self knowledge was studying existentialism, mm-hmm. existential psychotherapy specifically initially. But you can't study that without studying the philosophy mm-hmm. and starting to, to deal with all those all those cats. And so that's when I realized, oh, now I understand myself more. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Because I was always alone. I was a loner. I was very sensitive. I'm like an empath. I could pick up people's energy and how they feel and whatnot. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I think how I dealt with it was staying in my own little world, in my mm-hmm. own fantasy world, as well as using drugs and alcohol and other ways of not dealing with that because I didn't know what to do with it. So when yeah. I got into existentialism and they started talking about uh, being authentic and being your, being real and and that we, 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 you know, just dealing with the concerns of, you know, being the fear of death, the fear mm-hmm. of freedom, I would call it, the dizziness yeah. of freedom and the whole idea of, of, of you know, dealing with the fact that we were born alone and we're going to die alone. How do we deal yeah. with that feeling powerless and alone? Well, and what mm-hmm. is Heidegger, I think, what is it? The throneness, like how we're just thrown into this world. We don't, we don't pick our height, size, skin color, g- gender, country we're born in, parents we have, and just dealing with the starkness of the throneness of existence. Yes. And, and, and the meaninglessness of it. In other words, there's no meaning. We give things all the meaning that it means for us. We have, yeah, we bring meaning to things. We don't have instincts like animals, like, okay, so it's, it's, you know, winter's coming, so I'm going to fly south. We don't have that, so we have to. But that's the that's the bad news and the good news. We we can train ourselves, we can program ourselves for success, and so that's that's part of the journey is understanding that we all have this masterpiece of this Kuan Yin energy, this Christ consciousness, divine spark, um, Buddha nature, and that we all have it. And the idea is to only 
to develop it or to have access to it. And the only one that can do that is the individual self. That's why when we talked earlier about focusing on Joseph Campbell, focusing on the individual journey versus the, the group journey, that is why, because it has to begin with the self. It has to begin with, with me. Yeah. Taking responsibility. Now, just to pause for our listeners, this is pretty heady stuff. Uh, <laughs> not oftentimes when we bring guests on or we, 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 we dancing around Campbell and Heidegger and Franklin and all the things. Uh, I'm going to shift without using the clutch a little bit, but there is a connecting point here. You have obviously worked with some of the best athletes in the history of sport. And I think most people kind of have a perspective of what athletes are, what they like and what they don't like. You know, so when, if you're working with a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant or, you know, you and Phil Jackson, he wrote the forward to your book. And I don't necessarily think most people, when they guess about what happens in a locker room, is a lot of conversation about Immanuel Kant or the existential dread. Do you have to shift that to make that palatable to elite athletes or, or are elite athletes actually hungry for a dialogue around things that actually matter? Uh, elite performance, let's put it there because I work with more than athletes, but let's just say elite performance. You have to be yourself and you have to be in the moment. To be a mindful athlete, like the title of my book, Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. To be a mindful athlete, you have to be a mindful person. So it's about wholeness. It's about dealing with the whole person and the whole person's life. And even though basketball or the business environment may be the context, it's still how how do I deal with powerlessness and aloneness how do i deal with mm. accessing more of my potential mm. and you can't get away from the existential aspect of it although i feel like we need to talk about it even more because most of those athletes just like all of us there there's a lot of anxiety mm. and and anxiety is not the issue it's whether or not we manage the anxiety and understand the meaning of the anxiety Versus not understanding it, denying it, repressing it, and then it becomes psychotic or neurotic or yeah. debilitating. Yeah. And so I will say that one of the things that's really important is understand that to the degree we have potential and freedom, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is uncertainty. This is Kierkegaard, I'm going back to 1846 now. Yes, uh, sir. And he calls it the alarming possibility of being able. Hmm the alarming possibility of being able. So what did, what the heck does that mean? That means that the more we have freedom and stuff, that the, the other side, that's the uncertainty. In the military, they use the word VUCA, V-U-C-A. From moment to moment, things are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Hmm. So once we embrace the unknown, because we really don't know what's going to happen from moment to moment. Yeah. But the question is, can we hold our center and can we live according to the values, according to the goals that we have and say yes to life? I think Victor Franco has a book out called Yes to Life. He didn't put it out, but I think his yeah. foundation did Yes mm -hmm. to Life. Embrace it, which I talk about in my At Home with George, and generate the hope and say, um, you, you get to choose how you're going to respond or react to it. And part yeah. of our humanity, part of our potentiality is to be able to embrace it in a way where we generate um, more peace, more understanding, more compassion, more love. Now, now, this is probably a false dichotomy, but I'd love for you to speak into this. It, it seems as though people who perceive themselves to be successful or a, as you, whether you're in business or in sport, as you grow in, in power and agency and as you have success and access to more resources, 
there's this this kind of a paradox of choice. Like you, it's hard to decide what to do when you can do anything. And then conversely, people who don't see themselves that way feel like they have no choice and no agency. I find that my clients who are elite performers in business have both of those simultaneously. They're paralyzed by all the options, but they also sometimes feel trapped. Yes. Yes. And that's why <laughs> the only way out is always through. Hmm. As uh, as Robert Frost said. So here's the here's the challenge with that. That's right. That's why I'll, well, maybe I'll just summarize it this way. I have two sayings. If you don't know who you are, you can end up being anybody. Hmm. And if you don't know where you're going, you could end up going anywhere. So why hmm. don't you decide? Hmm. And the way to decide is an inside job. Listen to your heart. This is where we get into the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell talked about following your bliss. Mm-hmm. But you have to be still and know and ask yourself, who are you? Why are you here? That's where these these very existential concerns come up. And so part of that is, yeah, you could do anything. That's why if you're aimless or you're rudderless, you could end up being anywhere. But but making the choice, if you have five choices and you make the choice of one, you're losing the other four. Yeah. So it's 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 this idea that, like I said, freedom ain't free. <laughs> There's anxiety because then you're saying, well, is this the best one? Uh, you know, should I have done the other thing? And of course, anytime you change a habit, you're going to mobilize anxieties. And yeah. what we tend to do is something happens when we interpret it. So we say, oh, did we make the right choice? Did we not? And we have to be able to just make the choice and make it so, as Picard would say, make it so <laughs> we have to have to say, okay, I'm making a choice and I'm going to deal with the emotional follow but I'm, I'm going to be committed to my vision, committed to what I need to say. Now, at the same time, I have to be open to the possibility of, of adapting and changing. But it's I become uh, what, what, what goals I set and what thoughts I entertain and what individuals or organizations or, or situations I pull into my, my orbit and relate to it. So does that make sense? Because I know we're talking about really typical stuff, yeah. but that's the question. So my question to my clients is, what do you want? Yeah. And then the second part of that is, who do you need to be to do yeah. what you want? Now, I'm not saying yeah. being phony. I I'm, I mean, being willing to do what it takes to do that in your own unique way from the inside out. See, because a lot of times we're trying to emulate and do what – you know, yep. like what MJ did or what Kobe did, we can emulate them to the sense of the qualities, the characteristics and their stick-to-itiveness. When I talk about the five superpowers, you know, you have to figure out how to do it your way. It has to, and way. Joseph Campbell was very explicit about that. It can't be the Buddhist way. It's got to be your way. Hmm. It's got to be your way. And the only way you know that is, is to be still and know and to reflect and, and, and to do the self self-reflection and self-honesty to really say, this is what I really want, even though it's going to piss everybody else off (laughs) or or I'm not going to be able to hang with the people I hang with now. What's your commitment to you? You. Yeah. And then because if you don't do that, then you have resentment and then you're being kind of inauthentic. So I'm really curious about this, this aspect, having coached so many high level elite performers is that a question or is that a conversation that you find they're more aware of 
or less aware of, or is it just like, or, or is there a reason why some of those athletes or performers get to that point? It's because they're, they're already connected to that question and they don't know it. Like what, what is your experience being in those rooms with those types of people? Yeah. I, I think that they just follow their, their heart or they have a desire and they commit to it. If we were to talk about someone like Kobe, he's committed. So he's going to do whatever he's going, he was going to do to make sure it happens. So I was watching one of these uh, programs. I think it's something part of the title was smoke uh, mm-hmm. with, um, with Steven Jackson yeah. and Matt Barnes. And they were talking to Tracy McGrady and he was talking about his experience AU with Kobe, where they were going to go around and, you know, check out, maybe go to bar or something. And Kobe stayed in his room, was watching film. Hmm. Yeah. See, so you, you make a commitment. I'm not saying anybody has to do that, but that's kind of the commitment. You have to realize you have to delay gratification and you need to lock in and focus in. If we talk about Tom Brady, I think at the the last, I don't know if it's the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of his career, but I think, if, well, he only played 20 years. So I'd say maybe it's the last 10 years of his career, maybe more than that. Maybe it's just the last seven or eight, but he got to a point where he realized that he, he had to do things differently. He came up with the TB12 method and mm-hmm. he's spending 10, 12 hours a day in the off season taking care of business. Hmm. alignment with his goal. And so the downside is you don't have much time for your family. That's probably why he had a lot of pressure to retire. Yeah. You know, what else can you do? You know, so, but you see, you get what I'm saying? So at 40 years old, he was better than he was when he was 20, 25. And that's the thing about continuous improvement and just really getting the maturity to just focus and stay in your lane and do what, what is good for you? Does that answer your question? What I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting when Tom retired, he didn't use that word. He said, I'm no longer committed to being yeah. the best. It wasn't like I can't do it anymore. It was, I'm not committed to this anymore. So I'm going to fully commit to other things. And I, I'd never heard someone transition out of sport that way to say, this is a, I'm reorienting, I'm reorienting my commitments. That's freedom. Hmm. He, he, he's making a choice and he realizes that he's letting go of freedom, but now it's time to transition. And that's what happens to a lot of athletes sometimes, especially in, in the boxing arena. You see people that stay too long because hmm. they don't have the power, the freedom or the wherewithal to actually plan the next phase of their lives. Yeah. Hmm. At Novus Global, we have a saying, everyone has a next level and no one gets there by themselves. If you're listening to this, you can probably think of what's next for you. What's next for your relationships? What's next for your career or your leadership or teams? You probably have this sense that you're capable of more, but are maybe nervous about the work it might require or whether you truly have what it takes. Well, that's where Novus Global comes in. Novus Global is a community of some of the best executive coaches in the world. We work with leaders of multi-billion dollar companies, some of those famous athletes, elected officials, and household names in the world of entertainment. We know how to work with the best and help them get even better. And we'd love to explore what that would look like for you. To set up a free introductory call to see if coaching is the right fit for you, just go to novus.global forward slash begin. And you can do a video conference call with a coach from our team who will help you explore what you're really looking for. That's novus.global, N-O-V-U-S.global forward slash begin. Start your next level with one of our coaches today. 
Well, so then I want to dive in a little bit to the nuts and bolts of this, George. There's so many things that you talk about that resonate deeply with, I know with Dan, that's when he was raving about you to have you be on the podcast. And, and as I was listening to some, so here's some quotes that I've heard from some of your interviews, and I would just love for you to wax poetic a little bit about these, um, but they're relevant to our listeners who are leaders who are trying to find a way of finding some distance between the situation they're experiencing and the anxiety they have about it. So one of the things you talk about early in your book is understanding the space between a stimulus and response. That's right. I would love for you to, to tell our listeners a little bit about how that works and how that can serve them in increasing their agency in the world. This is, as, this is going back to one of the philosophers that said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm-hmm. So it's understanding that, that we have to reflect on experience. True understanding comes from reflecting on experience. And so when we don't have space between stimulus and response, I'm talking about a negative reaction, not mm-hmm. a positive reaction, because part of the training is to train ourselves in a way where we're reacting to things without having to think about them, but we program ourselves to mm-hmm. react in po- with positive result with positive energy. What you're saying is most people are unaware of how automatic their responses are to things. Yes. And there's a book called The Adaptive Unconscious or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they said 90% of our experience is done through mechanisms and automatic pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is to understand that there's automatic pilot and how to slow things down, how to create space between stimulus and response and, and mm-hmm. the process I I offer in my book the five superpowers or any kind of process where we actually learn how to, we operate with a sense of wonder, Mm. but we have to be able to slow down the perceptual process. So we're not just reacting to things, but we're actually getting the data we need. So, well, and even don't you, you make a distinction between reacting and responding. And I, I think, I feel like, especially for high performers, they get to a certain level because they're good at reacting and the reaction works. Yeah, that's because they've been they've been learning and practicing that behavior so that it's automatic. See, because the other thing we need to talk about is, <laughs> I didn't expect to get into this, but maybe I'll go there. Yeah. Uh, there's what they call a learning curve. Okay. Four steps. And this is, I, I, I heard about it, but I, I started studying it more with neuro-linguistic programming, mm-hmm. uh, NLP. Mm-hmm. So the first stage, and I'm going to summarize it in my way, the first stage of the learning curve is you don't know you don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's some people call that bliss or ignorance, <laughs> your, your, your opinion. The second step is the challenging one because you know you don't know. Mm. And then the third stage is you know you know. Then the fourth stage is you don't know you know. So mm-hmm. it's like if we talk about neuroplasticity or whatever, you program a neural net in your in your brain where things happen it's a way of being and you just automatically do it and so when you're learning how to do something so initially you're not you know you're not going to be able to do it but if you stay at it and you stay consistent and you have a process then you're able to do it and you see you're able to do it but then when you continue to evolve then it becomes effortless and it just happens that's what we people get confused and call it Muscle memory. It's not really mm. muscle memory. It's brain memory, but it's mm. it, it's it's controlling yeah. the muscles. And so so you learn certain ways of being. Like I remember when I was in high school and I was playing one on one with this other player from a, uh, another part of uh, Massachusetts, and he was you know he just played in the tech tourney and he was amazing, and we were just working out 
together and I'm playing with him. And he says, hey, you dribble without looking at the basketball. Hmm. And I, I had no idea. That's what I'm talking about. And you didn't know that you knew that? Yeah. At first, I had to keep practicing. Then I got to the point where I had to look. Then I got to the point where I knew that that I needed to figure out how to dribble and have more control without looking. So initially doing it, it was challenging because I had to look and it was the ball was going other places, but I kept at it. And so I got to the place where I know I can do it. And then I, then I got, so you know, you know, but then I got to you don't know, you know, because it becomes a process that you are, that's an automatic reaction what we're talking about where yeah. it just happens because because I practice this, but I went through that learning curve. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? For sure. So part of the process of, of, of being able to be aware, or people use the word mindfulness, and that means many things, so I try to stay away f- from it. But my way of, of observing or saying awareness is bare attention. It's just a mirror, and whatever's in front of that mirror is just reflected. There's no interpretation. There's no projection or minimize projection so that we're, so in the perceptual process is a very short period of time between when the raw data is just speaking to us hmm. and we immediately go in and we, we, uh, we bring in, you know, abstract thinking or associ- associative thinking, abstract mm-hmm. thinking, like, you know, this means that, that you know, yeah. that this is what's how this is projected forward associative thinking oh yeah i remember when this happened before so we tend to be observing things based on what we know based versus letting whatever's there speak to us in its own language so we want to extend the perceptual process so george yeah. with with your highest level performers and athletes that you've worked with is that something that they do better i yes i would say they do better and so they just, yes, so they know how to, they're very intelligent. They're very sharp, right? But we just see their behavior and think that it's just a behavioral thing when in actuality, 90% of it is mental, as Yogi hmm. Berra said. Hmm. Baseball was 90% mental, the other half, which is 10% physical. <laughs> so, so we want to train ourselves to be able to see things clearly. And this is moment to moment. It's not just athletes, yeah. like even now. So we, we are able to suspend disbelief, but also suspend our interpretation because the way the, 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 um, the visual cortex works is that we see something and then it relates it to what is in our memory, what we know. So things we don't know, we may not see fully because we're, we're, projecting and embellishing or projecting things or interpreting things maybe before we get all the information. Does that make sense? For sure. Well, in leadership, especially because leadership is all about people and people are the most transient forms of data. It's not like this microphone that I have in front of my face. You know, I'm obviously making things up about the microphone in front of my face, but you can get pretty concrete data from the microphone in your face. Whereas with Dan, you know, Dan and I work together. I'm not really relating to Dan as he is, I'm relating to Dan as I make him up to be in my mind. Yes. That could create limitations and what is possible for him and I to create together because I might be making up something about him that's not even remotely true. Yes. So so to create space between stimulus and response, we have to slow down the perceptual process so we're able to take more information in. So here's an example I, I used for years and maybe it's good. So where I live and when I used to take the public transportation, 
you go to different train stations or, or stations that have buses and trains. So I, I think it was the orange line. It was the elevated train in the day. And so I take the train to, to Forest Hills from Eggleston Station to Forest Hills. I lived in Dorchester. And then you, you have to come down from the platform to catch the bus. And so you're coming down the stairs and you see that there's a bus there. And in those days, the buses didn't have numbers or colors or they didn't have any writing on the side of the bus. It was on the front of the bus. So you run down, I run downstairs and I run to the front of the bus to look to see, and I see the letter, letter BR, and then I get on the bus. And so I get on the bus. So my intention was to go to Brockton. I end up going to Bridgewater. Hmm. Now, what's the difference? The difference was I didn't have the ability to just observe and let those letters on the bus speak to me, like B-R-O, B-R-I. Yeah. You know, all you needed to do is just a little bit longer, just just take mm -hmm. a little bit more of a look to get more information. So sometimes I need to get the whole seven or eight letters, whatever it is, see the whole what it says. And sometimes it's just getting the first one. If I was going to you know, Bridgewater and they said Avon or something like that, be really obvious is B. And then, uh, assuming there's no other B location, but, that's probably, <laughs> right. but you see what I'm saying? So yeah. the ability to extend that is the patience to just let things speak to us in its own language. And so there's this idea of wonder, this, this concept of wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, because I know I have a Boston accent. You might not understand <laughs> what that means, but wonder. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us. A passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. Hmm. That's the hmm. process. And so we have to train ourselves, train the people we work with to be able to be more receptive, like that relaxed alertness to be the watcher and to let things of the world speak to us in its own language. But it takes a certain level of vulnerability, certain mm -hmm. level of, of faith, and a certain level of wisdom. What am I looking for? What's my intention? What's the essence uh, of what's going on? So when I, when I ran up to the front of the bus to look at it, my intention was to go to Bridgewater or Brockton, whatever, whichever one. And, yeah. uh, you know, I went to Brockton, I wanted to go to Bridgewater. So my intention is, okay, I'm being mindful of the letters, but I have to, why? Yeah. So there has to be yeah. some wisdom there. Mindfulness by itself is not enough. You got to be mindful of what? Mindful of what, where this bus is going. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm yeah. mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, it could pull off any moment. Yeah. There's a, there's a tension between your intention and connection to that, as well as a, an openness and a wondering of what's happening. It, yes. It has to yeah. be guided by wisdom. So, to me, when you're practicing this process, from the time we wake up to the time that we go to sleep, we can have the mindfulness, the mirror mind, and the, the, the wisdom, the intention, uh, the clarity of what it is we're doing and why, or what, what are the essence of what we're doing here? What are the basic yeah. fundamentals? And so you can imagine if you've got everything there, you, you can be mindful, but it might not be the right kind of mindfulness. It might not be, uh, you might not be able to see everything because you're not looking in the right place or you don't know what you're looking for. And sometimes when we don't know what we're looking for, 
that's a time to just see what comes up. <laughs> but that takes something else. When we're doing something new for the first time, we have to be willing to make mistakes, willing to not see clearly. But once we notice that we're not getting the result we want, then we have to go back and say, well, what did we miss? Or or maybe we focused on the wrong thing. Yeah, and you have this word that you use, workability, to be able to notice. I'm, I'm imagining, I'd love for you to elaborate on this, when to pay attention when things aren't working. I, I can't tell you how many times in my own life, and sometimes in the lives of my clients, but more so in my own life, when I'm like banging my head against a wall and I'm completely unaware that that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and it takes an outsider to say, hey, do you notice this thing that you're doing that it's not working? And it's like, oh, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess I... I guess this isn't working, is it? And is that is that what you mean by workability, or do you mean something else? Yes, I mean, uh, yes, I mean to have an, have a unity between thought and action. So you have an intention and you carry it out, hmm. and it works. So it works. So yeah. whatever you did, if you carried out the intention, that's workability, or that's getting the result, getting the performance, or getting the outcome that you wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's powerful. Like to help people, to help people slow down, mm-hmm. notice what they're making up about things, notice, or even just notice what's not working, where there's a gap between intention and and action, and then helping people build new patterns of story making to create new results in their lives. And I just threw, a, by the way, just not to. I'm asking another question here because I just threw in another word, story making. Another quote that you had was, "Self doubt isn't real." It's just a story. And when I heard that, I thought that was so profound. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Because I, I imagine a lot of people listening, especially through the pandemic, have been full of self-doubt and and things slow down, businesses change and shift and things aren't working. Or I've never met anyone who doesn't struggle with some level of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And and what's funny is you're like, yeah, that's not real. That's just a story. How, how does that work? Yes. Well, it works by... The, uh, investigation so the thing what we tend to do when we have doubt we pull away from it or and doubt is just like die in the water so you can't see clearly yeah but doubt is paralyzing because it'll put you in the fear to the point where you won't even try because you doubt whatever you do is going to make a difference Mm. but that's a story you're telling yourself instead of investigating so Mm. when i have doubt about whether or not I'm prepared for an interview or I'm prepared for a presentation I got. That's just a story. It's just, but it's really just saying you don't have enough information. You need to investigate. You need to ask questions. So it's a it's approximate cause of wisdom. So this doubt about how we relate to it is, is predicated on our reaction and response. Our response to doubt is to embrace it and say, okay, so what am I doubting? What what am I not feeling confident about? Or what 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 understanding do I need to have? Or what information do I need so that that I can change that story? Yeah. Well, and part of it, I imagine, is what I love about your work is you help people become aware that they have a story. Yes. Most people think that their story is real right. versus it being a story. And and this this may be a, be a lazy question, but George, you know, when you work with the best, and again, whether it's on the court where some of your fame comes from or more private with corporate leaders, do you find that even people who are some of the best in the world, that they are disconnected from the fact that their stories may not be real, that they are living in an automatic response versus 
versus being able to become conscious and aware of the story they're telling themselves to redesign that? Let me say it this way. We all have a part of our lives where we have doubt and there's other parts that we don't have doubt, like myself. So let me just talk about myself in this way. I had doubts about my ability to be clean Mm. and sober. And once my friend came by, that made me curious. And I started Mm. investigating, focusing on how I was going to do it rather than focusing on I can never do it. So, so it's, it's helping people see that. And most of these elite performers, when, when, when something happens like a crisis or when doubt arises, they don't shrink from it. They move into it Hmm. and say, what is this? What's the lesson here? What do I need to learn practice to be able to get to where I need to go? But there's this faith that there's a way. Hmm. The, you know, the way. And so when when I listen to that phrase in the Mandalorian where they say, this is the way, yes. they're saying, just, you know, this is the way. You got to commit to this. You can't be wishy-washy about what we're doing. We know that this is the way. And now sometimes that could work. Sometimes it doesn't. But when you say the way out is always through and you believe that there's, there's a way out, then the going through is is accepted mm. and embraced. Yeah. Well, and what I like about the Mandalorian, even though it's fictional, is there's a culture of that group where that's embedded in their DNA. It's it's the like mm-hmm. the I think you called it. You're, you're, I think you're quoting Maxwell Maltz, but the automatic success. What, what's that? For? Yes. Automatic success mechanism right. of the Mandalorians is this is the way. There's a there's a, com- a conviction. Yeah, uh, I like Star Wars a lot, but one of the things I like more about Star Trek is how team oriented it is. It seems that like the it's really about a it's a workplace show about about a team, and sometimes it feels like Star Wars is more individualistic. You know, it's about Luke becoming a certain thing, and actually, that's one of my sometimes uh, tensions with Joseph Campbell's work is it's so focused on the individual, the hero's journey, not necessarily a community of hero's journeys. And I'm curious if you have ever felt that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, well, you, well, you're, I think you're not to be judgmental or anything, but I think you're looking at it from with a divided okay. mind, which means uh, either or instead of yes. And, and all organizations, all groups and communities begin with the individual self. So I would suggest that Joseph Campbell is showing you the beginning, not the end. Nice. But so then, isn't it? Do you find that some people then also look at Campbellian philosophy with an either-or and never get to the community aspect and just kind of stay in the individualistic space? Yes, yes. Because when he talks about um, black ego, I think one of those when he says, you know, um, where Connie Peak was the the center. But that everybody is coming from a center, so it's it's a metaphorically speaking. But if you don't begin with the self, which is really an illusion, as we say here, and for me, you can't get there from here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so it's all about. I would say the way around that is to always continue to expand the context See, because we keep relating the content as if it doesn't change regardless of the context. But in actuality, 
when you work with teams, there's that dynamic tension between the me and the we. I'll say this, I'm curious about your response to it. You know, part of our work is helping teams intentionally design their isms, their statements to become an automatic success mechanism. Is that also part of your work in terms of helping teams? Because you, know, you can work with individuals and is it part, is part of this just not just helping Kobe or Michael, but helping the Bulls and the Lakers develop a collective automatic success mechanism? Well, not develop it, access it. They already have it. Mm-hmm. See, this is the thing. I call it the masterpiece. We have a masterpiece. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to access it and, 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 and let it come through you. It's an inside job. So it's not something to be acquired. It's something to be discovered. And why is that distinction? I, I believe that distinction is important. Why is that distinction important to you? Why is it important for them to say, it's, it's, why, why discover versus design? Because design means you're creating it. And discover means it already exists. Hmm. So it's easier? No, that's what it is. It's, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, you squeeze the orange, you get orange juice. Where's the orange juice come from? Inside. Hmm. So what I'm saying is we are all masterpieces. We all have that automatic success mechanism, but we, already, we also have the automatic failure mechanism. So that means I talk about this in my book, the two wolves, the fair wolf and the love wolf. Which one will, will win is the one you feed. Mm. So if you feed your automatic success mechanism, it'll grow and it'll be dominant. But, it, but most of us feed our automatic failure mechanism and those emotions like fear, doubt, and insecurity. And it keeps us in there instead of, uh, embracing the fear as the opposite of love, the doubt, the opposite of wisdom and insecurity, the opposite of the idea that we may not be able to control what happens to us, but we can control our response to it. Hmm. So Victor Frankl says in that space between stimulus and response, we have the freedom and power to choose. Yeah. So that's that's the exciting thing. But the challenge, challenge is it's an inside job. No one can do it for you. You can't be waiting for some external power outside of yourself to do it for you, even at a group or a community. Yeah, they can support you, but you have to own it. That's why Joseph Campbell talked about the individual self. That's where we start. And then yeah. we get one self, it can help other selves, and then, then it becomes a community and it becomes one mind, one breath, one body. Well, and that's the story of your recovery is your friend yeah. brought back the fire. He went on his Campbellian journey and brings the fire back into you. And then you're able to carry that for yourself. Yes. So another word of health is wholeness, the whole person. I have a body, mind, heart, and soul or spirit. And that's what, that's what we're working on. So when I'm working with, I would say the difference between the elite athletes like a MJ and Kobe and other folks is that those elite athletes wanted more. Hmm. And they're more open and they're more tolerant of discomfort. So they get comfortable being uncomfortable because they know that that's the only way out is always through. Yeah. And so we all have that capacity, but which wolf are we feeding? And that's where the mindfulness is and, and the honesty of being able to say, well, you know, it's embarrassing, but I'm feeding the fair wolf. I'm, <laughs> I'm living in doubt. I'm identified with it. And this is the challenge because it's, more, it's easier to be doubtful and then go dark than it is to go to the light. Hmm. Well, and actually in that vein, and this is the last question I ask you, because you've been giving us more time already than I asked you for. The, 
you have a great story you tell about when you're learning how to communicate and, and public speak and how you get the shakes and you quoted Frankel's paradoxical intention right. and his logos therapy. And I'd love for you to, I, I was thinking about some of my clients and some of the people that we work with as you were sharing that story. And I'd love for you to, to share that because it, it's evocative. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's paradoxical, it's counterintuitive, how you manage that fear. Yes. So when uh, I'll use an example, uh, I'm not going to, because uh, I love the coach, so I'm not going to say who he was, but this is a football coach. Mm-hmm. And they were, and he was working with a team, and his team, and the and the potting words he said to the team, he said, "We turn the ball over, we lose," hmm. and that's exactly what they did. So don't turn the ball over. What you focus on that becomes your reality. So it's better to use the three P's: positive, personal, present tense. Man, you know, take care of the ball, make plays. Mm. Rather than saying, don't mess up or mm. don't screw this up or don't do that, don't do that. So so it's, it's, it's how we communicate. It's how we use the words. Does this make sense what I'm saying? It does, yeah. Well, isn't that, there's another phrase you use often is languaging. Is that what you're talking about in terms of languaging? Yeah. Well, just go to the Bible. Everything begin with the word. Hmm. So your word, so here's a quote. And I didn't know who it was from, but I started researching it. And it seems to be from William James. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Hmm. Hmm. So whatever, and I, because I, I was on on point and the guy that was interviewing me, he couldn't believe I had Kierkegaard and Dr. Dre in the same sentence. <laughs> but, but I'll mention Dr. Dre. He was on the halftime show. I think it might've been him and Snoop Dogg when they were rapping together, but one of his lines in his, one of his presentations says, I got my mind on money, money on my mind. Mm-hmm. That's meditation. Until we get to the point that we realize we're meditating all day long, there's no neutral thoughts. Whatever thoughts we have, especially with feeling, that becomes our reality. So mm-hmm. if you're focusing on what's wrong and writing, and this is, I, I can't, I can't watch the, the, the news media because they're so hyper-focused on what's wrong mm. that it's just creating it's creating something in a way where people are going to get hopeless, helpless and stuff instead of focusing on what's right, what, what works. Yeah. And that's a choice. So they're feeding the fear wolf. Mm. And the fear wolf prevents people from being able to make choices, choices that are that are conducive to their well-being and the well-being of others and realizing that we're all connected. When you're in fear, you start getting territorial and and um, tribal, and then everybody who's not in your tribe needs to be destroyed or, or you know, ignored. Yeah. And, and so we have to start understanding that whatever your mind is on, that's what's on your mind. And what we hold in mind manifests. Well, and, 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 and that spirit, you know, it's, I appreciate you getting your content out there as an antidote to a lot of the fear-based narratives that create a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve right now. And so please check out uh, George's book, The Mindful Athlete, and that's available where other books are sold. And there's some other places where uh, people can find you as well. Can you let us know where yes, we can find you? Yes, that's, I have a YouTube channel mm-hmm. that I do at home with George every Thursday, which I'll do my this week's version pretty soon we're coming up on two years pretty soon uh, i have a website georgemonfit.com and i actually have an online the, the mindful athletes 
uh, Secret to Pure Performance online course. Yes. You go to the website, people can join that. And I actually have one masterclass out there. It's called Dealing with Anxiety in the in the Time of, of COVID, which we talk about this idea of how we deal with this. Because right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety there. And not necessarily because there's potential. There's always potential for freedom or, or, or transformation. But it's also because they've been getting inundated with all of this negative stuff. And plus, because of COVID and people trying to make up for the previous two years, I just looked at my my heating bill for last month. It's <laughs> almost double. It's definitely um, a 40% increase or whatever. And yeah. everything is like that because people are making up for for lost time plus because things didn't get produced so production's down yeah um, the, everything is rippling up so people are saying 75 7.5 inflation and you want to blame it on one person or hmm. president or, or this or that but the reality is that there's a lot of things and as long as we blame people places and things and don't take responsibility or realize oh this is one of the ripples from covid and Instead of placing blame, let's focus on the solution. Yeah. Let's focus on how we can make it. So one of the things, and I'll end with this, as we send all the manufacturing to other places, now the roosters are coming home to roost because they're going to take care of their folks and China and India with all the millions of people. Now they want gasoline and all the other stuff. Now we got we to gotta fight for that. So we need to understand, like I said before, being clear about what the causes are so we can focus on the solution. Yeah. And blame is never the root cause of what it is we're doing. I call it the B and D. You know what the B and D is? No. Blame and denial. And as long as you do those two, you don't take responsibility. And if you don't take responsibility, you cannot make choices, wise choices, because you're yeah. giving that power to somebody else. It just does not work. And our world no, not is not workable. Yeah, it, 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 our world is in desperate need of workability. And George, I'm, I'm grateful that you are putting out resources to help people learn how to make their lives workable and advocating for a wisdom that is uh, beyond the way we mostly think most of the time. Also, just one last thing about your, your mastermind course, I believe there's videos, but then you actually do like a weekly thing where there's like a Q&A and people can interact with you. Is, is that right? Are you still doing that? Well, with with the online course, we have quarterly calls. Quarterly calls. And, and there then you go. We have like uh, just thank you for reminding me. So in April, I think uh, I think we're going to begin April six or somewhere around there. There's going to be a six week study group, and I believe this week this six week study group. So when people sign up for the course, they're in the course for a lifetime, and so every quarter we have a live call, and then twice a year we have a six week study group. The last study group we did was be courageous. Mm. One before that was making connections and one before that was be resilience. And the one we're going to do coming up is going to be around uh, your life is your practice, something like that. Yeah, that's great. Well, George Mumford, you really are a gift. If you're listening to this and you want access to one of the best coaches in the world, please look him up. All of his stuff we're putting in the show notes. And I thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. You're welcome. Appreciate you. Yeah, me too. 
All right, we have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into the hands of as many leaders as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. We drop new episodes every week, so subscribe and watch us continue to learn to create resources that serve you powerfully. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from hundreds of clients around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. If you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. To start that journey, simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You also might be listening to this and maybe you want to be a coach or maybe you already are a coach and you want to build a six or seven figure practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's www.mp, as in meta performance, .institute. And we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you'd need to create a meta-performing coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. Head on over today. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer and Jeremy Davidson as editor and audio engineer. We love working with these guys. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.